night before my head hit the pillow, I was hit with waves of doubt, waves of fear, waves of anxiety, waves of concern. And I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, just, 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 just do something. This stinks. And he said, remember when I did this? Remember when I did this? Remember when I did this? And 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 the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. We're not seeking for some glorious past. We are looking forward to a glorious future in Christ Jesus. And I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you come in here with waves of fear and concern and doubt and anxiety, whatever. But what we sang today is true. He is light. He is good. He's a miracle-working God. Open your heart to him today. Open your life to him today. Let him flood in. And the next time your head hits the pillow, he'll say, remember what I did here, and remember what I did here, and remember what I did here, and remember what I did here. He's a good God. And he wants you. He wants you. Let's pray to him this morning. Lord Jesus, the Bible says the same one that said, let there be light, has allowed the light of Christ to shine in our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you have illuminated our lives. You have changed us. You have made us different than who we were before, and it has been to our benefit. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Lord, we thank you for all the benefits that we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the ways that you have proven yourself time and time and time again. And Lord, I look forward today to this be the start of someone's journey, that they'll be able to look back to November 3rd, 2019 and say, that was the day I began to see the Lord as a miracle-working God in my life. We expect that today, Lord God, because you are here. We praise you, Lord, for your love, for your goodness, for your mercy, and we ask that everything that we do and say for the remainder of our time together would be glorifying to the name of the Lord Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Well, it is really good to be with you here today. We are looking forward to all that God is doing right now here at Victory Life and what he continues to do uh, each and every service that we have here. We're looking forward to what Pastor Otto is going to bring us this morning in the Word. We're looking forward to what God's going to do through our commitment time today. We're looking forward to what God's going to do in our second service and life groups today. God is here today, and he is touching hearts. He really is. We're looking forward to everything that he has for us. Uh, I'm going to ask our ushers at this time, if you would make your way into the aisles, we're going to pray over our offering. And at this time, as they are making their way into the aisles, young disciples, you may be dismissed to go down the hall. If you have, are new here this morning, you have kids, grades K through 6. Our children's church program is beginning right now. They can follow this gaggle of children down the hall and uh, make their way down for a message on their level. If you want to go with them, you're welcome to do that. You can choose to stay down there. Maybe the message will be on your level down there. Uh, Pastor Otto is an educator after all, so we don't know what's going to happen in here. All right.
Well, let's pray, and uh, I think that's up on the screen. If you want to give into what God's doing here at Victory Life Church, he is turning lives around. That's why we give. That's why we give to God. We're looking for him to turn lives around throughout Stowe, Chicago Falls, Hudson, Streetsboro, Akron, all the places that we come from, Talmadge. Forgive me, Talmadge people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence in this place today. We thank you, Lord, that we are not alone. We come into a season in a few weeks, Lord, where we begin to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it means in the Hebrew. Lord, we look forward to Emmanuel today in this place. We thank you, God, that you are present here. And Lord, I pray that you would use this offering, use these tithes, use the giving of your people to introduce more people to Emmanuel, the God who wants to do life with us. We thank you that you are such a good, merciful, and loving God. And Lord, we pray that you would use us mightily here in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. It's good to see each and all of you. My name is Pastor Otto, and I get the good fortune of uh, bringing God's Word to you today. As you know, we've been in this series um, that is uh, highlighted behind me, Jesus 101, these letters that are almost as tall as I am. <clears throat> Thank you for not laughing too hard at that. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, uh, this is the series that we are in, and as we are in this series, we've been, we've been going through one of the Gospels known as the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. And so if you'd like to take your Bibles and turn to that particular chapter in the Gospel of Mark, that's where we will land uh, today. All the scriptures will be projected up here behind me. Uh, but before we get into uh, Mark 8, uh, might I begin with, with a story. There was a man named uh, Smith who was sitting on his roof during a flood and the water was up to his feet, and after some time had passed, a man in a canoe paddled his way, and he shouted to Smith. He said, hey, can I give you a lift to higher ground? And Smith said, no thanks, I have faith in the Lord, and he will save me. Well, soon the water rose to Smith's waist, and at this point, a motorboat pulled up, and someone called out, can I give you a lift to higher ground? Smith said, no thanks. I have faith that the Lord Jesus will save me. Well, later, a helicopter flew by, and Smith was now standing on the roof with water up to his neck. Grab the rope, yelled the pilot. I'll pull you up. No thanks, said Smith. I have faith in the Lord that he will save me. 
But after hours of treading water, poor exhausted Smith drowned, and he went to heaven. And as he arrived at the pearly gates, Smith met God there and complained to God about this, this turn of events. He said, tell me, Lord, I had such faith in you to save me, and you let me down. What happened? To which the Lord replied, what do you want from me, Smith? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> it's a great story. And it's a story that illustrates something that I'd like to talk about uh, today. And uh, the story that I want to talk about today illustrates some people that missed God uh, when he came their way. So if you ever felt like you've missed God in your life, please know it's not the first time this has ever happened. The pages of Scripture are full of people who have missed what God was trying to do with their lives. But I hope after today's message, you'll become a bit more aware of what God may be trying to work in your life. But before we jump into Mark chapter 8, uh, it's important to know some details about some things that Jesus is talking to his disciples about. So at the beginning of Mark chapter 8, Jesus feeds another large group of people. And as you may remember, last week, Pastor Matt in Mark chapter 6 talked about how Jesus fed the 5,000. And I would imagine most, if not all of us in here, have heard that story prior to Pastor Matt sharing it with us uh, last week. But in this particular passage of Scripture, Jesus feeds another large group of people, and this time it's 4,000. And when he was about to feed this large group of people, his disciples said this in Mark chapter 8, verse 4. They said, where are we going to get enough food to feed them? And Jesus said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Well, long story short, Jesus takes these few loaves of bread and feeds this large group of 4,000 people. And as I mentioned last week in Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 people. And what's so interesting about the story in Mark 6 is how much it resembles the conversation that we just saw here in Mark chapter 8. Look, look at the way the conversation unfolds in Mark chapter 6. It should be behind me. Can you help me out, James? There we are. All right, good. It says, the disciples said, send the people away so they can buy themselves something to eat. But he, meaning Jesus, answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Well, how many loaves do you have? Once again, go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. So as you can see, the same conversation happens. The same thing happens. Jesus takes this small amount of food and feeds this large group of people. Two amazing miracles, two very huge miracles, and two very important events that should have been instructive for his disciples. But after this second big miracle, some very interesting conversations and events happen in Mark chapter 8. Jesus begins dealing with stuff so that people can understand how he works. And the first thing he begins to deal with is what I would refer to as a confusion issue. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 14 and following. It says this, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees 
and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you, not, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Interesting. So as you can see, Jesus is, is pretty ticked off at his disciples because they're becoming confused after these two huge miracles. This is why he reminds them, you began with five loaves for 5,000 people, and then I stepped in, and you had 12 basketfuls of bread totally left over. Then he says, you began with seven loaves for the 4,000, and then I stepped in, and you picked up seven basketfuls that were left over. And here Jesus knows that even though when he steps in to make a difference, the story of his stepping in can very easily get lost. And I think this is why he says, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, because the Pharisees and Herod are symbolic ways of looking at God. So I provided a slide for you that kind of defines what I think Jesus meant by these things. I think he meant that the yeast of the Pharisees represented the idea of reducing God to someone I can serve in my own power. Whereas the yeast of Herod represented the idea of reducing God to someone that serves me through political power. And he didn't want these ideas to spread among his followers in the same way yeast can spread throughout a whole batch of dough. Because as you and I know, it just takes a little to spread through a lot of bread. And Jesus, not wanting his disciples to be confused, wanted them to know that he was the one who ultimately can take a little and make a lot out of it. This is what Jesus just demonstrated to his disciples when he fed 4,000 people with all these baskets full of bread. Now, what's so interesting was uh, this notion of baskets. I started thinking about what these baskets look like because, you know, when I think of baskets, I think of like a little wicker basket that I would put apples and oranges and bananas into. Some people put candy in them, but I'm not that unhealthy. But I started looking up this definition of a basket, and the Greek word for basket is something known as spurios, which means that it was a basket that was very spacious. It was almost like a very large clothes hamper, something large enough uh, to hold a man uh, within it. And upon doing some study, I found out that in Acts chapter 9, you may recall this story, we read about a story of how a basket was used to help the Apostle Paul escape when he first started preaching the gospel. So the word used to describe this basket in Acts chapter 9 is the same word used here in Mark to describe the baskets of bread. It was spurious, which implied a very spacious basket. For example, if you look at the screen, you'll see an image of this story that I've just referred to. And you can see this basket 
was, was very, very large. Now, to test the size and strength of these baskets, our staff decided to live out this story we see in Acts chapter 9. And as you can see, this week we put Pastor Matt into a similar basket. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it worked. It worked. The basket, basket was very strong, was very large, and very reliable, and Pastor Matt lives to tell the story. I'm glad you enjoyed that. And I have, to, I, have to, I have to confess, I have to thank our office administrator, Stephanie, for that one. She said there's no limits to her talents. Thank you, Stephanie. The point here is that these baskets were huge. And the point is that when Jesus and his disciples began, they did so with only a few loaves. And Jesus knew by the way that they were talking that they were already losing sight of how big of a deal it was for him to do what he did. They were already confused. And this confusion issue was something that was important for him to resolve. But what's so interesting is right after he resolves this confusion issue with his disciples, the very next scene in chapter 8 includes Jesus dealing with a blind man. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 22, and following. We will entitle this scene, A Vision Problem. It says this, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked him, Do you see anything? He looked, he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Have you ever read this story? Amazing story. Can you imagine being blind and then being able to see, but only kind of? What is that about? Was Jesus having a bad day? Did he have a power outage? Did this guy need his glasses? This guy still, after Jesus touches him, he still has a vision problem. Now, I don't know about you, but when I take off my glasses, my vision is pretty bad. I don't want you to turn around, but there is a clock back there that's digitized, and I can't see what it says. Some of you in the back row, you can turn around if you'd like. But all of you can likely see these exit signs. The only reason I know they're exit signs is because I, I looked at them with my glasses on just a moment ago. But I can't read them without my glasses. When I look at this sign over here, I can't read what it says in the, the red caption here under Give It Away. That's how bad my eyesight was. And when I look at you right now without my glasses, you too look like a bunch of trees sitting there. <laughs> but then I put my glasses on, you look so beautiful. And so when this guy tells Jesus he can't see things in full detail, look at, look at what happens. In verse 25, it says, Once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus solves the vision problem. End of that story. And so the next scene of Mark chapter 8 now deals with Jesus establishing clarity about who he is. But as he does this, his disciples have another misunderstanding. They have another mishap. And this time their mishap is about his mission. Let's look at the entire conversation in verse 27. 
It says this, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now, before we go any further, it's worth knowing some details about this city known as Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a well-known pagan city. Uh, there were temples built in this city to a Greek god known as the Greek god Pan. And in Caesarea Philippi, there was a cave where Pan supposedly lived, which was believed to be the gateway to the underworld. In fact, well-known Christian theologians have actually represented Pan as the personification of Satan, is what they have said. So Caesarea Philippi, in many ways, was a city in which God's enemy, the devil, had a foothold. This is the setting in which Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. So this is what he says. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Verse 28, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So in this town, Caesarea Philippi, in this setting where Satan's presence was known, is the place where Peter makes known his belief in Jesus as God, in Jesus as the Messiah. And what Jesus is doing here is getting a pulse on the situation, because he can tell there's some misunderstandings and mishaps. Maybe perhaps another way to say it is that he wanted to check Peter's vision to ensure he was seeing Jesus clearly. And Peter could see clearly what Jesus wanted him to see. And he could see this right in Satan's backyard. One author wrote, Jesus chose Satan's turf to proclaim his glory. It was a simple way to let the world, both seen and unseen, to know that there would be a coming battle for the souls of men. And that battle begins right after Peter makes this confession because in the same moment he proclaims the glory of God, he too has blurry vision when it comes to the mission that Jesus was on. Look at this mission mishap that Peter himself commits. Verse 31, he, meaning Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of God of men. So right after Peter makes this most important confession, he misunderstands the mission of the Lord Jesus. A mishap wherein Jesus labels Satan as the chief instigator in Peter's mind. Pretty bold statement, don't you think? And I think it's quite a sober reminder about how easily the enemy of God can influence you and I to think wrongly about the mission of God. Because this was a mission mishap of epic proportions. And since we are looking at this event on the other side of history, it's easy for us to know that Jesus had a plan because it's already happened, and he did. We know that now. It's easy for us to see, but maybe 
wasn't quite as easy for Peter. Understandably so. So let's do a brief recap of what we've learned so far, because it includes some really big stuff. So first we talked about how the disciples were confused. Uh, They didn't understand how Jesus was able to do big things with very little, and Jesus was sure to let them know. And second, we have this bizarre healing encounter with a blind man, in which case it took two touches before he could see clearly. And then third, after all the time the disciples spent with Jesus, they understand him to a certain extent. They believe that he was the Messiah, but they do not understand his mission as the Messiah. And somehow, all these stories have significant meaning. Because every word and every action that Jesus performed was purposeful. And I think he was trying to get something clear about the way that he worked, which was simply the fact that his ways were different. In fact, one of my favorite verses comes from the Old Testament. You've heard it before. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever stepped on planet Earth, the prophet Isaiah said this about the way in which God works. Isaiah 55, 9 says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. His ways were hard to understand for Jesus' disciples, and I know they are at times hard for us to understand as well. But to be sure we understand the unique ways in which God works, let's try to remove all confusion and misunderstanding by highlighting his ways in the stories that we have discussed today. So the first thing to be drawn from these stories, in my estimation, is this. God's ways are huge. They're huge. He didn't feed four people. He fed 4,000 people. He didn't use small baskets. He used huge baskets. And there were seven of these huge baskets left over. Because when Jesus steps into a situation, his ways are huge. And if you you and I will let him be who he really is, it will be huge. Because he wants to do something huge in you. He wants to do something huge for you. And he wants to do something huge through you. I heard recently a story about a little boy who said to his dad, I want a little brother. And the dad told him, well, you should pray about that. And so he prayed for one month, and nothing happened. Prayed for two months, nothing happened. He prayed for three months, and nothing happened. So he just quit praying. And about six months after that, his father took him to the hospital, pulled back a curtain, and said, look, there's a baby brother. But then the father said, wait, take a look here behind this curtain. Here's baby brother number two. Then the father pulled back another curtain and said, look, here's baby brother number three. And the father said, aren't you glad you prayed? And the son said, yes, but aren't you glad I stopped praying after three months? (laughs) Listen, the moment Jesus gets involved in something, things happen in a huge way. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, how many loaves do you have left over? He's saying, look, I'm always going to surprise you with how huge I work and how huge I do things. Because when he shows up, he does so much more than we expect. 
You know the well-known statement that Paul made? He said he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. God does so much you can't even measure it. It's just so huge. For instance, if you have a problem in your life and you need God to do something, you need to know that he can work in a huge way to resolve it. If you have a loved one in your life that needs to see God for who he really is, ask God to make himself hugely known to them. If you have a sin in your life that is shaming you, ask God to take it and to show himself huge. If you have a fear about something, ask God to become bigger to you than that fear. God's ways are huge. Just consider some of the characters in the Bible. I think of Abraham. When God told him he would build a nation through him, he was a very old man. But you and I both know that God did it. I think of Moses. He didn't believe God could use him to lead the Israelites out of captivity, but God used Moses hugely. I think of David. He was a shepherd boy who took on a giant and defeated him. God inflated David's heart with huge faith, and he slayed the giant. I also think of the Israelites. As Hebrews tells us, they crossed the Red Sea on dry land when they were chased by the Egyptians. And then the waters receded and covered the Egyptians. God did that too. And I could tell you many other stories found in the pages of Scripture, all of which tell the same story, the story of God taking very little and doing something very huge. And he wants you to know he wants to be huge in your life too because it was huge when he fed 4,000 people with a few pieces of bread. But not only are God's ways huge, Sometimes God's ways take some time to become clear. Because when God begins working in a person's life, it might not be so easy to know that it's God doing the work. It may take some time to become clear and for you to see that it's actually him doing the work. And I believe this was actually the point of the blind man's vision problem. Because after Jesus touched his eyes the first time, he didn't see what he was supposed to see. But then he touched his eyes a second time, and he saw what he was supposed to see. And I think this story illustrates a very important principle in our lives as followers of Jesus, and it's this. It takes time for God's ways to become clear. The disciples witnessed Jesus healing this blind man and probably were part of the reason Jesus chose to touch this man's eyes twice. And quite frankly, I think the Apostle Peter's life is a prime example of this principle on full display. Because when Peter was with Jesus, he could see some things clearly, but not the entire big picture. Because you and I know Peter was someone who rebuked Jesus after, after he proclaimed him as the Messiah. Peter denied Jesus moments after he told Jesus he would die for him. Peter didn't understand Jesus completely when he first started to follow him. It took him some time, but even after all these mistakes, Peter was someone who eventually understood the big picture. And when he understood the big picture, when he got it, he gave it away in a huge way. For example, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached a sermon to thousands of people just a year and a half after he denied ever knowing Jesus, and this is what he said. Look at this in Acts chapter 2. He said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. 
Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, and you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Isn't this amazing? This is the Peter who rebuked Jesus for predicting these very things he was now preaching in Acts chapter 2. Because Peter now understood Jesus, but it took him some time. And Peter could now see clearly what Jesus was all about. And because he could see it, his impact was huge. For example, later on in Acts chapter 2, it says this, those who accepted his message, meaning Peter's message, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Maybe we can learn from Peter's life that it takes time to get the big picture. But when you get it, when you know the story that God wants you to tell, watch out. Because you might be like Peter. Once you come to know that God wants you to know what God wants you to know, your platform could be huge. Even Paul knew this. He said, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So may I encourage you, press on. God has something for you, but be encouraged. It may take time to see it. But if you hang on, the impact your life could have on others could be huge. Pursue what he wants you to see so that God's way can become crystal clear to you. I have one more point I want to make, and I was hesitant about making it. And this is just for some people in here that need to deal with this one thing. You can go ahead and come up, AJ. The last point that I want to make is that God's way is something that he wants you to know. And this is just for some of you, and when you hear this, you'll know what I mean. He doesn't want you to be confused. He wants you to be clear. I think we've learned that from these stories. And he will step into your life as many times as possible to make himself clear. May I remind you once more the conversation Jesus had with his disciples when he said to them, who do people say that I am? Remember what they said? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Think of it. Somebody walked up to you off the street, and they said, who, who, who is Jesus? I, I think you'd get a lot of different opinions. Some would say he's a good teacher. He's a prophet. He had great wisdom. But Jesus wasn't so concerned about what others thought because he followed up this question to his disciples, and he said, who do you say that I am? Because this is not about what others say. This is about you. He said, who do you say that I am? It's personal. He wants to know what you think because this is the most important question you will ever answer. And your answer should not be based on public opinion. It should be based on what you know he has shown you through the testimony of scripture. Because if there's one thing he wants you to know, it is this. It's that the Messiah has come and it is Jesus. 
one of my favorite teachers who was a New Testament expert put it this way. He wants you to know this because the number one job of Jesus as the Messiah was to get people to quit looking for one. That is his one singular goal with everyone in here today. And may you let the testimony of Scripture bear witness to the fact that the reason God works huge in your life is so that it might become clear of what it says in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so if Jesus walked in this room right now and tapped you on the shoulder and said, who do you say that I am? What would you say? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the exact imprint of God. That is why we do a series entitled Jesus 101. Because when he came in human form, he was the exact representation of you. And he did huge things. He did some confusing things. But we know that he came, he healed, he redeemed, he died, and he resurrected. And all of that stuff has meaning. It all has meaning. And some need to take meaning from these stories that we've learned today and apply it to their lives for what is going on in their lives right now. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would do just that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we close this morning, would you stand and we're just going to declare.